A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Also want to say for if you've been around for the last two weeks, I've been making a promise. Uh, as, we've been, as we've been immersing ourselves in Isaiah chapter 40, I've, I promised that I would pick up the pace. And today I am going to fulfill my promise uh, in a bit where it'll take me a while to get there. But we will cover easily, we will cover six or seven verses today. I know, I know. Lightning, blinding speed, uh, and then we'll wrap things up next weekend. Uh, I've just personally thoroughly enjoyed being able to preach out of Isaiah chapter 40. You know, one other little piece of information that really doesn't uh, matter to most of you is that this week, Tuesday, uh, my wife and I celebrate 24 years of marriage together, and uh, very excited. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I can safely uh, speak for her if she were here today. She was here last night. If she was here today, she would summarize those 24 years in a line out of uh, the tale of two cities. It's been the best of times <laughs> and the worst of times. Uh, a little of both. I mean, there, there's, there's been both sides of that. Speaking of the best of times and the worst of times, we're about 40 years removed from the 80s, which was the best of times and the worst of times. Some of you remember, yes, there we go. A product there of big hair and neon right there. Uh, what a decade that was with acid wash and parachute pants boom boxes and Walkmans, both of which I still own and use. <laughs> and there was things like Care Bears and Rubik's Cubes. And there was another piece of the 80s that wasn't as much of a, a pop culture icon, but it was very much a part of the 80s. Some of you may remember a little activity called Shrinky Dinks. Shrinky Dinks, where there's this little thin piece of plastic, this, uh, you know, polystyrene, and, and you could, with felt tips and colors, you could color things and, and, and then cut it out and then put it in the oven and watch through the window as it began to contort and began to shrink down and become flattened back out and be one-third of the original size. What a beautiful, beautiful craft. That was amazing stuff. Well, now, the reason I tell you that is because Israel had their own 80s. Now, there was no neon, no big hair, but it was the 580s BC, and they had a little thing that had happened with them. It was called Shrinky Deity. They had taken this idea of this Yahweh, and over time, they had kind of somehow in their mind, their perspective had, had shrunk him down, and, and, and another product for the 80s was, honey, I shrunk the kids. Israel had shrunk, shrunk yeah. their God had gotten a lot smaller in their mind. And Isaiah comes along and he wants to confront that faulty, small thinking about God. And what we've seen in Isaiah 40 is that, that he confronts that. And the key verse that we've used throughout this series, verse 9, where he says this, lift up your voice with a shout, 
Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Behold your God. It's not this tiny little God that you've shrunken down. It's not this small little mindset. He says, I want you to get an accurate picture of who this God is. And when he says, behold your God, and when he begins to paint this picture of the greatness of God, it's not from an act of imagination that he's just conjuring up this idea. It's not just from Israel's history, which was true. It's not just from the laws and, and the Torah. It was that. But Isaiah would say, I know what I'm talking about. Because for Isaiah, this wasn't just book knowledge. It wasn't just hearsay. It wasn't just something that he thought about. It was something that he had experienced. There was a moment in his life, an experience that he had, that was the most awesome and awful simultaneously. It was the most tremendous and most terrifying thing he had ever, nothing would ever compare to this. He he refers to this earlier in, in the book where he's actually seeing God. In Isaiah chapter six, he said this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I'm not just telling you something I read about. I'm not telling you something I heard about. I'm telling you something I experienced. And it was amazing and it was terrifying. I saw the Lord. And I find it interesting that he says, in the year King Uzziah died. I mean, not just a, not just a chronological marker, not just a date to say, I want to make sure we, we document this. It was when everything was turned upside down. When there was uncertainty, when there was fear, King Uzziah had been the king of Judah for 52 years. We don't let a president go more than eight years. Uzziah had been their leader for 52 years. In addition to that, he was one of the good kings. He was one of the godly kings of Judah. And under his leadership for over half of a century, things had prospered. Life was good. And now he's dead. What's it going to happen? Who's going to take us? How are we going to, what will it be like? A lot of uncertainty. And I think there's a reason for this, that in this moment when all of his world is upside down, when he begins to realize even good kings, prosperous kings, godly kings, their reigns come to an end. And it was in that year, in that reality, that he saw the Lord the king of kings, the king eternal, the one whose reign would never end, on a throne that was high and lifted up far above all other kings. And he saw the Lord. So when he comes to address Israel, he comes to let them behold their king of what he's experienced with his own eyes. And he puts out a bunch of rhetorical questions that we started looking at last weekend. These rhetorical questions that have a very obvious answer He's not looking for an answer. He's not looking for information from them. These questions are, are a way of illustrating, in a kind of a backdoor way, illustrating the, the, the inconceivable and ineffable greatness of God. We looked at that last week, and we'll look at some more of these questions today as we continues on in just a moment. But I want to fast forward. I want to jump over our, the section that we're going to be looking at today, clear to verse 25 in Isaiah 40, if you're following along. Isaiah 25 is another very unique verse. Because throughout Isaiah 40, you find where Isaiah is speaking as as the prophet, speaking for God, on God's behalf. 
But in Isaiah 40, verse 25, I think this is the only place in the whole chapter where God speaks in the first person. Now it's not the word of Isaiah, it's the word of the Lord. And he asked these questions. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Who are you going to compare me to? Are you going to compare me to yourself? Are you going to say, well, you know, this is what Yahweh and I have in common. We're a lot alike in these areas. Are you going to compare me to the rulers of this world? Are you going to compare me to the world superpowers, Nebuchadnezzar and Artaxerxes and Tiglath-Pileser and the pharaohs? Are you going to compare me to them? Are you going to compare me to the, the, the gods of these other nations? I mean, Assyria had four primary deities, main gods, and then, and then a bunch of sub-gods. And Babylon had nine main gods and a bunch of lesser gods below. He says, are you going to compare me to the gods of this nation? Who are you going to compare me to? You're going to compare? You can contrast, but don't compare. See, there's a big difference between comparing to and contrasting with. When we compare to something, we look at where are the likenesses? Where are the similarities? What do these have in common? The contrast is where are the differences? How are these things not alike at all? He says, you can do okay with the contrast, but who are you going to compare me to? I mean, we see this. If you've ever sold or bought a house, a realtor will give you some comparisons of other properties or other houses that are in the same area, about the same age of your house, the same square footage, the, the, the same kind of neighborhood, the same lot size, so that there's a comparison. This is what this went for. This is what they're asking for this. This is how you can know what this one is probably worth in this market. Now, it's not exact, but it's similar. You kind of compare these things. And when God says, who will you compare me to? And who is my equal? Who is exact? No one. Who's even kind of close? The answer is obvious. No one. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high. Very obvious answer. You see, for God, God is God alone, incomparable. There is no comparison. He's God alone, incomparable. You know, we sing this song on the bridge where it says, um, you have no rival, you have no equal now and forever, God, you reign. There is none. God is God alone, incomparable. Um, this will date me, I know, but years ago, when I believe Saturday Night Live was still funny. <laughs> Decades ago. Chevy Chase was still on Saturday Night Live in these days. And he was doing, I think it was the weekend update. And one time, he went off script, which their actors often do, which makes it so funny. He went off script, and he just looked in the camera, and he said, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. And for whatever reason, it kind of caught on. Kind of became, you know, kind of his line. And what we see here is God is saying, I am God, and you are not. I am God, and that world leader is not. I am God, and those countries' idols are not. I am God. I am God alone. In 1 Timothy, we read this. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. 
Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is in a category of one. He doesn't have contemporaries. He doesn't have people that are like in the same thing. Well, how's your universe going? Because let me tell you how mine's going. He says, no, no, I am the only God, the only God. So let's go back to that verse where he asks those questions. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? And the answer is very obvious. Or who is my equal? And look at this says the Holy One. Let's talk about that for just a minute. We will get to the passage eventually that that I'm telling you about. But this idea of the Holy One, I just have to tell you, for for me, every time I see that title for God, the Holy One, it takes me back to um, a thing that happened while I was younger. As I've mentioned many times, my dad was a pastor, and, and he was my pastor for most of my life. At our church, there was an individual that started attending uh, the church that my dad was the pastor of. And this individual had either somewhere along the line been in ministry or gone to seminary, was not currently serving on any church staff, but he referred to himself as bishop. And this uh, bishop that would come to our church drove this large Lincoln Continental. Nothing against the Lincoln Continentals, but he drove this large Lincoln Continental, and the bishop also had some degenerative hip disease or something, so he had a handicapped parking spot, and so he would drive his bishop, um, would drive his, his large Lincoln and put it like there in spot A1, you know, that handicapped spot right closest to the door. It was fantastic. The only thing is, he had a personalized license plate with these seven letters, H-O-L-Y-O-N-E. Holy one. And my dad hated it because people would drive into the church parking lot and make the assumption that was his car and his license plate. <laughs> that of course, of course the pastor would bark in that privileged spot right closest to the door. Even if it is a handicapped spot, it's our pastor. He's got the Lincoln and he is the holy one. A little presumptuous, I would say. My dad drove a little Honda Civic. (laughs) Now, when God says, I am the Holy One, it's not presumptuous at all. When Isaiah references him throughout his book as God being the Holy One, again, this isn't from an act of imagination. It happened in that moment when he saw God, when it's this terrible moment where he says, woe is me, he calls a curse on himself. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips because it wasn't just God that he saw. When he saw God on his throne and high and lifted up, there was something else that was going on. Because in that room, there were these angelic beings, these seraphim with six wings. With two of the wings, they covered their eyes because they could not bear to look on the glory of God. With two of the wings, they covered their feet because they were creatures. These feet that that touch ground, they are creatures and they're in the presence of the creator. And with two of their wings, they began to fly around and encircle God. And this is what Isaiah saw as these seraphim were going around God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, as we've talked about before in Hebrew literature, especially in poetic type literature, whenever there's a word that's repeated, it's for emphasis. Because in the Hebrew writings, they didn't have bold, all caps, underline, italics, like some of you send your text when you're really upset. It was just like you would repeat this to to make emphasis. This is a really bad example, but when I was growing up, I was always Bobby until mom got really mad, and then it was Robert Neil Marvel. That was for emphasis. 
So when it says holy, 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 it's not just a repetition. It's not just a stuttering. It is for emphasis. That, that phrase is called um, the, the, the tri, trisagion or trisagion, thrice holy, three times holy. Some of us grew up singing that great hymn, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Years ago, R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Holiness of God. And in that book, he references this passage and this event that happened. And he points out that it's the only time in Scripture that any of God's character traits or his attributes are ever elevated to the third degree. Never in Scripture do you ever see it say, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. Mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord God Almighty. Justice, justice, justice. No, only holy, holy, holy. And Sproul goes on to say, that so often in our minds, when we hear or see the word holy, we think about a secondary definition, a secondary meaning, which is accurate, but incomplete. When we hear the word holy, when we think about the word holy, we think about like moral purity or goodness, uh, uprightness, which that's accurate. It's just not complete. Because when the seraphim were going around the throne, they weren't saying purity, purity, purity is the Lord Almighty. He said a better and more complete definition of holy is this whole idea of, of being utterly other, of being beyond, of, of being more. So when you talk about God's holiness, God's holiness is beyond purity. He is transcendently separate, wholly other, set apart, different, not separate like far away, separate like far above, separate in his grandeur, separate in his majesty, separate in his resplendent glory, that he is just different than anyone and anything else, that he is beyond all that. You know, in Revelation, John has a similar type of experience, and he writes these words in Revelation 15, 4, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You alone are holy. There's no one else like God. There's nothing else like God. God alone is the self-existent one. Everything else has been created except for God. God alone is the self-reliant one. Does not depend on anyone or anything else except himself. God alone is immortal, invisible. You know, he is immutable, inscrutable, ineffable, indefatigable. These are big words for me. <laughs> you know, indescribable, inconceivable. <laughs> He's just beyond. And this transcendent God, he himself answers the fundamental, foundational, beginning question of all science, philosophy, and theology. The question that scientists and philosophers and theologians have wrestled with for centuries, he is the answer to that. That fundamental question, more than, you know, how did the, was there a bang and how did all this start? Before all that question, the fundamental question is this. Why is there something instead of nothing? 
Why does anything exist? Why is there a universe? And there's all of these theories and arguments and philosophies about that. But the answer is a holy transcendent God, a creator God, an eternal God. So he says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Behold your holy God. Now, that's my intro. Ready for the sermon? All right, let's get into the sermon now. Okay, so let's pick up where we left off last week. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verses like uh, 10, 11, and 12. And in those verses, we've been seeing this whole idea of the anthropomorphic terms that are these human character traits that are put on God. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the arm of God, the arm that rules the world is the same arm that gathers his lambs and holds them close and carries them. Last week, we looked at the hand, the great hand of God, the hand that, that measures out the waters in the hollow and the hand that, that marks off the heavens, the hand that, that gathers up the deserts and the dust in a, in a basket and weighs the mountains on a scale. And today, we're not looking at the arm or the hand. Today, we're going to look at, uh, at least initially, another anthropomorphic term for God, and that is the very mind of God. Now, I thought about in these next two verses doing what we've done in the last couple weeks of going phrase by phrase, but I don't think we have time for that, so I'm going to take a different approach to that. Isaiah chapter 40, we pick up where we left off, verse 13 and 14 says this, more, more rhetorical questions. Who has understood the mind, some of your translations would say, who has directed the spirit, who has understood the mind of the Lord, or who has instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? We begin to look at the omniscience, the all-knowing nature of God here, this universal, complete knowledge, because he just throws this out, like, who helped God along on this? You know, when he talks about it being a, could you imagine, hey, God, uh, come on into my office, sit down, tell me about your childhood. Who's been God's counselor? Hey, hey God, uh, come on now. I've been instructed. I'm going I'm to read with you. Too. I'm going to be your tutor. I mean, who is instructed? You see, all of us, we have all our lives, we have learned and we've grown and we're hopefully continuing to learn and grow. But for the most part, someone helped us learn and grow in those things. Things that our parents helped us out with or our grandparents. And you can look back and say, you know, my grandfather helped me. He taught me, he taught me how to fly fish. My, my grandmother, she taught me how to knit. I, I know, that's stereotypes of grandmas and grandpas. I'm sorry about that. But those fly fishers and knitters, great for you. But, but someone taught us these things. You know, I, I learned this because, you know, I watched my brother do this. Now, that's not always a good thing to learn. <laughs> But I learned this because there was a teacher, there was an instructor, there was a professor that helped me grow in this area, learn. There were some books that I read, some authors, some experience. There were some YouTube videos that I watched. There was a coach that I had. Somewhere along the way, someone has instructed us and helped us and we learned. We don't do that on our own. And he's saying, whoever did that for God? Whoever instructed him? What YouTube video did he have to watch? Who was his professor? I meet with a group of guys on, on Wednesday mornings, and uh, in this group, um, you know, we're going through uh, some Bible study and doing life together. It's, it's common knowledge in this group of guys that when it comes to auto mechanic type stuff, I, 
and completely incompetent. Um, I am better than Pastor Jeff, I will say that. Um, but but um, he's with our middle school students this weekend, so I can say that he's not here. Um, but I, I just, when it comes to auto mechanic stuff, I'm, I'm just basics. I mean, and, and, and they're all aware of that. And I always tell them, you know, my difficulties of changing the light bulb in my wife's car or the tire, whatever it might be. Here's the problem that makes it even worse. There are two of the guys in that group that are master mechanics. And when I say master mechanics, I'm not talking about weekend warriors. One of them, his occupation is he is an exclusive Porsche mechanic. All he does all day, every day is work on Porsches and he's one of the best Porsche mechanics in our area. The other master mechanic used to be a Porsche VW Audi mechanic. He left that, opened up his own shop and can work on any make and model at all. These guys are master mechanics. And so it's real obvious that one of these things is not like the others. But so a couple weeks ago, I was sharing with them my latest uh, adventures in mechanics. And, uh, and I said, uh, there was something that I was going to tell them that really would make me look foolish, because I am. And, and I, I said, now guys, I, I want to tell you, you guys all know I can't do anything when it comes to cars. This one's going to make you re feel really good about your mechanical ability. And one of them said, kind of under his breath, I already feel good about my mechanical ability. <laughs> so he didn't need my help. So <laughs> I decided to proceed with the story anyway. And halfway to the story, I haven't even laid it all out. The other one says, well, did you try this? Ah, he already knew the answer, and I hadn't even told him the problem. <laughs> These guys are amazing, but you know what? They didn't learn that on their own. They went to one of the finest mechanical institutions in our nation, and they continue to learn, and they continue to grow, and they continue to take classes. They didn't come up with that on their own. And even the greatest, brightest experts in their areas might know a lot, but they didn't come with that on their own, and they probably don't know everything there is to know. Last weekend, those of you who are science geeks really loved last weekend's sermon. <laughs> we began talking about the cosmos, so let me just kind of throw one in for you again. You know, we, we talked about the, the, the solar system and the galaxies and the, the galaxies and galaxies and clusters of galaxies and the universe and all this. Astrophysicists and cosmologists will say that all the stuff we talked about last week, all these billions of light years and billions of stars and planets, all of that stuff, all of that that they study constitute, they believe, about 5% of the universe. In fact, from NASA's website, I just thought this was too good to pass up. Let me, let me just read this. Because they're talking about 5% of what we see is what they study, but there's all this dark energy and dark matter. So when it comes to dark energy, this is what is said on the NASA website. More is unknown than is known. We know how much dark energy there is because we know how it affects the universe's expansion. Other than that, it is a complete mystery. Astronomers theorize that the faster expansion is due to a mysterious dark force that is pulling galaxies apart. Unfortunately, no one understands why the cosmological constant should even be there, much less why it would have exactly the right value to cause the observed acceleration of the universe. 
By fitting a theoretical model of the composition of the universe to the combined set of cosmological observations, scientists have come up with the co composition roughly this way. Of the universe, of the universe, roughly 68% is dark energy. Roughly 27% is dark matter. And roughly 5% is normal matter. Now, I would think if it's 5%, that's not normal. Like, that's the exception. There's 95 that's... What is dark matter? We are much more certain what dark matter is not than we are of what it is. These are the most brilliant minds, astrophysicists, and they're saying, we're working on 5%, but there's 95% of this universe. We don't have a clue. We don't understand it. We don't get it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 147, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. His understanding has no limit. I was thinking about what are some statements you'll never hear God say? This is what I came up with. You'll never hear God say, really, I wasn't aware of that. You'll never hear him say, wow, I learned something new today. You'll never hear him say, you know, I have no idea, but I'll look into it. And I'll get back to you and tell you what I find out. You'll never hear God say, hey, Siri. <laughs> hey, Alexa. It just won't happen. I'm going to make a statement that's going to bother some of you. Because it will come across sounding very negative, but it really illustrates something very beautiful and positive. In fact, for some of you, it'd say, wow, Bob, I think that might even be blasphemous. I, I may step back just in case. But I'm going to say it anyway. And hear me all the way out. What we're talking about here is God's divine learning disability. God's divine learning disability. God's learning disability is not a limitation. It's an unlimitation. This is how it plays out. If God were able to learn, if God were able to discover, if God were able to grow in knowledge, if God were able to find out something new, that would have meant that there was something he didn't know before which would mean he would not have been omniscient. And if God could continue to learn, that would mean that he is not omniscient now, that he is continuing to grow. He simply cannot learn in the best term of the word because he is the divine know-it-all. He knows all things. There is nothing for him to learn, nothing for him to discover, nothing for him to, do, to grow in his, his fathoming, his understanding of. So let me throw another if-then. If God is all-knowing, then why do I sometimes think I know more than him? Then why do I sometimes think that my way is really better than his way? That my will will br bring about something better than his will for my life? To whom will you compare me? And who is my equal? 
this omniscient, holy God. Well, Israel would look around at these other nations, especially when they were prospering. They would see these other gods. They would see their idols. They'd think, well, maybe we should follow that one. We'd go after Baal. We'd do this thing with Marduk. We'd go, we'd go after all these things. And, and God confronts that as well in Isaiah. It comes back to the same rhetorical question. Jump down to verse 18. See, we're, we're skipping. We're, we're going to cover some ground here. We better. We only have eight minutes left. Okay. Verse 18. Again, to whom then will you compare God? This is Isaiah saying, to whom will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? What image? Now, they had been clearly instructed in the Ten Commandments, you shall make no graven images. You should not make an idol of anything in heaven above or in the earth below, and you shall not bow down to it. They knew that. But the other nations, the other peoples, they had these idols, they had these images. And there was always this, this pull, this draw, like, well, maybe we should have them, or why don't we have ours? Or, well, where's our God? You know, why can't we see ours? And what we see in these next verses with, with these, these uh, statements is that Isaiah begins to point out the absurdity and the futility of idols. That is like an absolute waste of time. Like, like God saying, really, seriously, you want an idol? You want one of these foreign gods that you can see? You really think that's going to work? And what I love with this is he starts off kind of like saying, do you know how they're even made? It's kind of like, you know, when someone says, I, I saw how they made the sausage, you know, I'm never going to eat that again. Or, or you know, yeah, if, if you've ever been to a restaurant and said, if you knew what went on in the, in the kitchen, you'd never eat here again. That kind of, or if you knew what went into hot dogs, and don't get me wrong, I love hot dogs, and, and not, not so much on the bologna and spam. But if you knew what went into that, or head cheese, oh, head cheese, you just look at it, it's like, ooh, that's nasty. But anyway, if you knew, would you eat it? And I think God's saying, stop and think about where these, how these things are made, and you really want to worship these? You want to serve these? So he throws it out. He says, let's just, little review for you. Verse 19. As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. Whew, sounds beautiful. A craftsman. I mean, this masterpiece. And a goldsmith overlaying it with gold that's valuable and beautiful and puts silver chains. I mean, this thing, as the kids would say, is dripping. I mean, this thing is looking good. But I think God comes along and says, okay, notice, who is it that's making this God? Isn't a creator greater than the creation? This God, this idol, is created by, sure, a craftsman, a goldsmith, yes. But do you realize I created them? I knit them together in their mother's womb. And as far as their ability with metal, I gave them that ability. And as far as the gold and the silver, those materials, I created those. And you're gonna want to worship that, really? Oh, and the nice silver chain? Yes, it's, it's nice, nice silver chain. Did you forget that I Wear a necklace of solar systems and galaxies and billions of stars. And you want to worship that? Really? Do you not see how it was created? Okay. Behold their God. And for those of you who can't afford, like that deluxe model, he goes on, verse 20. 
A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. Go with cedar. Lebanon was known for its cedar. Get a cedar from Lebanon. Have it shipped down. Go with cedar. He looks for a skilled craftsman. Again, find someone that knows what they're doing. Skilled, not just some, you know, discount. Skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Because it would not be good to serve a deity that falls over. Again, this will date me, but there used to be this little toy called Weebles. Weebles wobble, but they... <laughs> you guys all had Weebles. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. He says, if you're going to have a deity, make sure it's a Weeble deity. Or at least give it a med alert. Because your deity will say, I've fallen and I can't get up. At least let your deity somehow know that it's fallen over because it can't stand back. When, when he starts, he's just making fun of this whole thing of why would you ever follow an idol? And I love what, what Jeremiah writes about this real quick. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2 through 6, he says, This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations, for the customs of the people are worthless. Here we go again. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it will not totter. And then I love this phrase. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Their idols cannot speak. Oh, I worship my idol. I pray to my idol. But all day, every day. <laughs> Never a word. Like a scarecrow in the melon patch, he cannot speak. On top of that, they must be carried because they cannot walk. Have scarecrow deity, will travel, got to take my little God with me. Do not fear them. They can do no harm. They can do no good. No one is like you, O oh Lord. You are great. And your name is mighty and power. So if you want to keep birds away from your cantaloupe. Great. Get a scarecrow in a melon patch. But if you want a God to help you through life, a God that will speak, that will guide, that will comfort, that will save, that will help, don't go with a scarecrow in a melon patch. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my likeness? Psalmist writes to Psalm 135, I know that the Lord is great, that our God is greater than all gods. You know, at the end of this uh, section, it's almost as if God's just, just shaking his head. Disbelief. Verse 21. Do you not know? A have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Now I'm telling you, it's a whole lot easier to point at Israel here and say how dense they must have been. But I wonder how many times God just comes to me in love, shaking his head, saying, Bob, really? Do you not know? Have you not heard? I mean, you know my word. You know you've experienced my faithfulness. 
you know that your biggest regrets are when you went your way instead of God's way. You know that the mistakes that you wish you could go back and redo is when you decided you would discern and you would trust your own will, your own way, your own word, and walk away from God. Do you, do you not know? Have you not heard? So why would you ever want a scarecrow in a melon patch? Instead, go to the source of all knowledge and wisdom. Go to the source of the one who knows all things. You know, one of the things um, I'm grateful for is that my parents instilled in me at an early age the value of memorizing scripture. Um, they modeled it. My dad, my dad, my goodness, he had a memory better than anyone I've ever met in my life. And, my, and he would, I mean, scripture, he would just, just quote scripture and, and poetry, all kinds of anyway. And my, and my mom, she instilled this in us as kids early in life. And she would even bribe us. She would say, hey, here's a verse. If you memorize it by next week, I'll give you a dollar. And she shared that one time in a conference and someone pushed back and said, you really paid your kids to memorize scripture? You know what her response was? Long after the dollar was gone, the word of God was in their heart. And I got candy. <laughs> but the first verses I remember memorizing were in the late 60s down in Ruston, Louisiana. I was a young guy, five, six years old. The first one I remember was King James, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But there was this verse that we memorized in Ruston. I think our whole family, I think our whole church memorized it, if I remember this right. Verses that you're very familiar with, some of you. Verses that would serve us well if we wouldn't just memorize them, but live them. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what I first memorized, and he will direct your path. He will make your path straight. But if God is this all-knowing God, then I can trust him, even when it doesn't make sense to me. I can follow his way, his word, his will, even when I think I know better. Little logic journey. Who knows more in life? A three-year-old or a nine-year-old? Rhetorical question, but you can answer it. The nine-year-old has more life experience, more education, would know more than a three-year-old. Who knows more in life, a nine-year-old or a 15-year-old? More education, more life experience, the 15-year-old would. Who knows what's more, a 15-year-old or a 35-year-old? Don't ask a 15-year-old. <laughs> and don't ask about technology, but... The life experience, the education, the 35-year-old. So insert your own age. For me, who knows more? A 60-year-old with three pounds of gray matter, not having a, an absolute clear picture of what tomorrow holds, let alone the future. Who knows more? This 60-year-old with three pounds of gray matter or the eternal, all-knowing, holy God? And why would it be that I trust my own thoughts over God's? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All right. 
close with this. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? We're going to conclude this series next weekend with the, the dramatic conclusion of this Isaiah chapter 40. But for the reading time, behold your holy God. Follow him, trust him, keep in step, and walk in obedience to him. Our desire is to help people find and follow Jesus because that is the path to life.